Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy to welcome those of you here and those of you watching online. Thank you for that. We're in our Easter series. It's about coming home. And it's based on Luke chapter 15, where Jesus was actually answering his critics. He was answering the religious people of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees who were critical of him. When you look at the very opening verse, they were critical of him because he was hanging out with sinners, (laughs) with people who did not know his heavenly father, with people who did not identify with the synagogue or the temple or anything religious of that day. And yet that was the very ones Jesus hung out with. He was spending time with the people and it was offensive. It was offensive to the religious people. In fact, um, uh, when you read and understand what the rabbi taught, they taught that there were only really two classes of people. All right, there is the righteous and the unrighteous. And of course, they were always in the category of the righteous, obviously. And so uh, they would be very critical of Jesus hanging out with people who they considered to be unrighteous. And so, when it, it, and it opens with this idea that the tax collectors and sinners came to see Jesus along with the scribes and the Pharisees. So you, you've got two groups of people that are identified there in uh, Luke 15. There are tax collectors, sinners, there are scribes and Pharisees. So righteous and unrighteous in the mind of the Pharisees. So uh, the the tax collector, as I told you last weekend, let me just rehearse this with you again, were very dishonest people. Uh, Rome hired these Jewish people to collect taxes from other Jewish people, and they were known to be very dishonest. Some scholars even compared them to the mafia of that day. Uh, They kind of were a a subculture in and of themselves. Uh, They would uh, basically come to you if you owed uh, Rome some tax money, and if you paid them a little bit under the table, they would pay some of that toward Rome, and the rest of your bill would go away. So the Jewish people didn't trust them. Uh, they hated them. The Roman government tolerated them. So they were kind of, you know, they, they were just kind of in no man's land there, right? And the Roman government allowed, even though they knew they were dishonest, they allowed them to function because they were getting some tax money. And their attitude was, well, a little uh, something's better than all or nothing. So that's the, that's the tax collector. I don't want you to miss that. That's who's showing up to hear Jesus. Now, can you imagine you're hearing Jesus teaching, look over there, and there's the guy that just shook you down you know, over your tax bill, you're going, holy cow, or something to that effect. He's actually here um, listening to Jesus. What is this guy doing showing up listening to Jesus? And so you had this this tension. And then you had people who were in just, just obviously kind of open immorality, and they're showing up to hear Jesus as well, kind of the, 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 the known sinners of the day. And so the Pharisee were there. They were seeing that crowd that was coming around Jesus and they were critical. Uh, in fact, you can't read the opening verse of that without catching the criticism. They said, he is associating, he is fellowshipping with, he is, he is identifying with these sinners. And I mean, I, I imagine they'd almost spit just to have the word in their mouth, the word sinner. They could not imagine that. And so you have this um, contrast of these two groups of people hearing Jesus. 
One is listening because they know there's something missing in their life. The other is listening so they can criticize what they're hearing. They're just there to be a critic and not really to, to listen to what God may be trying to say to them because after all, they don't need God. And by the way, even God can't fill what's already full. And so when you approach God with, I got my act together and I don't need anything, I'm in a position now to judge everybody else, then God can't do much in the life or the heart of a person because even God, as I said, won't fill somebody that's already full. You come empty and that's how he fills you. So these are the people that are sitting out there listening to Jesus speak. And so he underscores the reason that he came to the earth. He underscores the purpose of Christmas that we celebrate. And he said, I came, Luke 19, 10, to call uh, the lost. I, I came seeking and saving those who are, are lost. And so Jesus uses this word lost to describe the spiritual condition of people more than any other word, more than any other word. He uses the word lost. And if you've ever been lost, you can understand or appreciate why he would say that. Uh, trying to find your way home, uh, lost, trying to find someone, lost, uh, trying to navigate you know, to the, your next destination, but you know you're lost. And Jesus said, I came to help the lost. Isaiah prophesied about the coming of Jesus and said, those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. So Isaiah knew there would be the Messiah coming one day to help find those who are lost. So Jesus had to remind the religious people that's the main thing. That's what it's about. That's what the cross is that we'll, that we'll commemorate in a few weeks. And that's what Easter is about. It was the opportunity for God to redeem mankind. So Jesus came to save the lost. And so in Luke 15, he gives a three-part parable. He talks about a lost silver, a lost coin. Now, many scholars believe the coin was a reference to a, a veil or a headdress that women would wear for their wedding. And so it was very sentimental. Uh, it was valuable, but the sentimental value would have been much more than the, than the monetary value. And so it talks about the woman whose coin and the headdress was lost, and she just turns the house upside down trying to find it. And then he talks about the lost sheep, and I kind of dealt with that last week a little bit. And, and then he, he talks about this one that we're dealing with for our Easter series, the lost son. And when you read the narrative of the lost son, that portion of the, uh, of the parable, there are really there are four components in the story that our Easter series is exploring. You have the first element of the younger son, and I talked about that last week. This weekend, I'm gonna talk about the older son. Uh, the third element in the story is the father. We'll talk about that next week. And then the fourth element in the story is the party, the celebration, that they threw when, the, when, when they came home. And that, we'll do that one on Easter. So today we're kind of exploring the older brother. And he, he doesn't jump out as prominent in the story as the younger brother um, because his issues were not as, as open and as, and as uh, visible and as widely known and talked about as the, as the younger brother. If I put the younger brother in a category, I would say the younger brother, and by the way, we really can see ourselves in both. The younger brother represents people who are sinners and know they're sinners, right? They're sinners and know they're sinners. I love that honesty. I love people when they just, man, I messed up. I, I, I admit it, I make mistakes. I, that, that's awesome. Um, it, it's it's a, a, a point in a person's life where they actually can get help is when they know they need it. And a sinner who knows they're a sinner can be a lost sinner or a saved sinner. Now, I don't want to get too out far in the deep weeds. Let me explain myself. 
The minute you receive Jesus as your savior, you stop being a lost sinner and you start being a saved sinner. Meaning there's never a moment in your experience or mine on the earth when you will not sin. I've told you before, do not pray for sinless perfection because the only way you're gonna achieve that is when you die. So just pray God kills you and that's, then you get sinless perfection. So don't pray for that. So the point I'm making is you and I are gonna, and, and the Bible makes provision. Now I'm not excusing it, I'm just being honest about it. I'm just saying we're gonna see, you're gonna, how, how many of us have, the Bible says even the thought of foolishness is sin. And who among us who knows Jesus hadn't had at least one foolish thought today already? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So what happens then when a saved sinner sins? Well, what it doesn't do is it doesn't affect your relationship with God. You're, you're sealed, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, unto the day of redemption, meaning you are a, a, a certain for heaven as though you're already there. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for sins, past, present, and future. And once you receive him as Savior, that means all of your sins were covered, not only the sins of your past and your present, but all the sins of your future as well. You cannot be unborn spiritually. When Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, um, you have to be born again. He didn't say born again and again and again. You know. Jesus died once and for all, once and for all. He doesn't have to come back and die again because that salvation, the efficacy of the cross covers all sin. So my point is, when you receive Jesus, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, so your relationship is certain. Here's what's not certain, fellowship. Fellowship. Um, you can be in a relationship with someone and be out of fellowship with someone. Are you married? Do you have kids? <laughs> you get it? You have a business partner? You can be in a relationship, but not like that person very much. You can have a connection to this person, but be out of fellowship. So what happens when a, when a saved sinner sins is they break fellowship. So what do you do? Well, you own it. You confess. What is confession? By definition, the word is agreement. When you confess, I confess, we're agreeing, we're saying, God, you were right, I was wrong, shouldn't have said it, thought it, done it, sorry, my bad's on me, I'm agreeing with you, I'm confessing, and 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he didn't say if you confess your, John said if we confess our, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, God makes provision when a saved sinner sins, fellowship can be restored, but, there's also a need for a lost sinner to own their sin. I said, you don't get saved until you realize you're lost. You don't know you need to come to Jesus till you know you need to come to Jesus. And so the, the, the easiest people in the world for Jesus to minister to were that category of the younger brother who were lost and they knew they were lost. You didn't have to convince a tax collector he's crooked. I mean, he knows that. You didn't have to convince you know, the people that were caught up in all kinds of things of their day that they were wrong in what they were doing. They, they knew that, they knew that, man. They already knew, they, they were lost and they knew they were lost. And so Jesus comes to them and ministers to them. They are actually the priority and I, and I tell you why. In Mark chapter two, you have the conversion, uh, here, here it is, of a tax collector. I mean, Jesus finally got to one of them. <laughs> and when the moment that tax collector knows, man, I, I, can't, I can't keep taking advantage of people. I can't keep ripping them off. I, I can't keep, I can't do business this way and represent my faith in God. I, I, I gotta get my act together. I gotta get my life together. So he resigns 
as a tax collector. Well, the other tax collectors get together and throw him a party, kind of a retirement party. Can you imagine the kind of party those guys had thrown? Have you seen any of those parties? I don't want to mention any movies, but have you seen where the mob throws a party? Uh, I mean, it, I'm sure it wasn't real sanctified. I'm sure all the conversations around the table were not real sanctified. And I'm setting that up to tell you in Mark chapter two, look, look at this, Google it, it's a thing. Jesus is there. He's there. He's setting, now, Again, he's not being sinful in order to reach sinful people, but he is associating with them for the sake of building a redemptive relationship with them. Remember I told you last week, statistics show within the first two years after a person has a meaningful relationship with Jesus, they have virtually no friendships with people who don't know Jesus. And that's a shame. Everyone in the room who knows Jesus and all watching me online ought to be building redemptive relationships to people who do not yet know Jesus. Now stay with me, because what, this, what was happening in Mark 2, Jesus was building a redemptive relationships to these tax collectors as they were celebrating one of their own who was retiring. Now guess who wasn't in the room? The Pharisee. The second group represented in our story by the older brother. The Pharisee, they're standing outside looking in. Remember, they don't associate. There's only the righteous and the unrighteous. There's only the clean and the unclean. And they're not having anything to do with those guys. They're standing off, staring at them, critical of them, judging them, and in so doing, judging Jesus. And Jesus goes and confronts them. He confronts them, and here's what he said. He said, I didn't come into the world to call the righteous to repentance, but the unrighteous, no, 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 wait. He's not saying the Pharisee is righteous. He's saying the Pharisee is self-righteous. He said, I can't reach a self-righteous person. I cannot reach a person who doesn't think they're lost. And the hardest person to convince oftentimes is the sinner, here's the second category, who doesn't know they're a sinner. The older brother represents a sinner. He's just as lost as a younger brother. You're gonna see in a moment. He's just as critical of his dad as a younger. The difference is his sins are inward while his little brother's sins are more outward. There are sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. Sins of the flesh are easy because you see them. Sins of the spirit are harder because we can hide them. And people tend to condemn the sins of the flesh while they condone the sins of the spirit. If you wanna look at the things God hates, look in Proverbs six, and he identifies six things and the seventh he said are an abomination to him. And did you know what the majority of those sins are? Sins of the spirit. The things that are hidden, the things that we don't often talk about, the things that we think make us qualified to judge other people. The things that we are, feel qualified to pontificate to look down upon other people. They're, those are sins of the spirit and they're harder to deal with. And here was the younger brother. He has an epiphany in the story and he turns. What is repentance? Metanoia in the Greek, it's to turn. Repentance means I was going this way and I've turned and I'm going that way. Uh, there's a difference between being remorseful and being repentant. A person can harm you and say, I'm so sorry I hurt you, I didn't mean to. That's remorse. But when they repent of the hurt they've given you or done to you, that means they've changed their way. That means they've changed how they treat you. And I would tell you just to evaluate what a person says against what a person does. 
Because if a person is genuinely repentant, the Bible speaks of fruits of repentance, meaning there'll be some fruit hanging off that repentant tree. <laughs> There's gonna be some things you can point to to say, she's different, he's different. Here's what I know. And I'm suggesting that this young brother in the pig pen in our story repented. Why? He got up, turned his back on all of that, and he came to the Father humbly saying, make me one of your hired hands. He left saying, give me. <laughs> he comes back saying, make me. You see a change there? And the point is there is a radical change in the life of the sinner who knew he was a sinner. And what happened in the story is he smokes out the sinner who didn't know he was a sinner. And can I tell you, sometimes you and I really don't know the condition of our heart till it gets exposed. Did you know God will send us into circumstances from some time to time to reveal things in our life that need to be dealt with? Sometimes we go through a hard time so we know that we're not as strong as we thought we were. We're not nearly as advanced as we thought we were. So God will use adversity in the life of his kids to expose some things about them. Give me another illustration of what I'm talking about. In Mark chapter seven, in Mark seven, he said it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out of them. So what comes out of my heart is the things that defile me, not what goes into my heart. Now the younger brother was putting some garbage in. Uh, the older brother already had garbage in. He just didn't see it. He didn't see it until the circumstances of his younger brother coming home suddenly revealed it to him. He had an epiphany. He realized that he was just as lost as his brother. His sins were more inward while his brother's sins were more outward. So the Bible says it's not what goes into the one that defiles him, it's what comes out. And I told you before, you really don't know what's in you until the right circumstances comes along to squeeze you a little bit, uh, to shake you a little bit, and all of a sudden what's in you comes out of you. And by the way, I've told you before, we're all full of something. <laughs> and you don't really know what you're full of till you get bumped, squeezed, or shaken. And God will send the bumping, he'll send the shaking, he'll send the squeezing, so you know what's in your heart. Because as long as I'm just seeing your flaws and I'm, remember Jesus saying the tendency is to point the splinter in the other guy's eye when you got a two by four hanging out of your head? Loosely translated. And that's a tendency we all have. It's a lot easier for me to point out the things that are wrong in other people than to look at the things that are wrong in my own heart. So don't miss this. This is Jesus' story about two boys that were equally lost. The moralist and the hedonist can both be wrong. And I'm just saying on one end, you have this guy, oh, I would never. And on the other hand, he's got party. And both of the boys were away from the father. One was inward, one was outward. Let me prove it to you. Since you probably have an inquiring mind and you wanna know. Look at Luke 15, 25. Meanwhile, the older son's in the field. When he comes near the house, he hears music and dancing. So he says, what's up? What's going on? And the, and, the, and the guy says, your brother's come home. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Now understand, to kill the fatted calf, the custom of that day, that was amazing. That was a feast. You didn't kill the fatted calf unless somebody in your family got married. I mean, that was, this was throwing a high-level party. 
This was, this was uncommon. It wasn't the common. It wasn't like grilling burgers. This was, when you did this, you, you, you're, you've got a band in, you're dancing, you're eating. This is huge. This is over the top. And the older brother is shocked because he hasn't seen this before. And the brother became, no, now angry. He became, instead of being happy that his brother who was away from the father and away from home has come home, it made him mad. What did I say about you don't know what's in your heart till circumstances happen and all of a sudden what's in you is exposed. So he, he didn't see the anger in his heart. He didn't see the hostility in his heart. He, he didn't see any of that until God allowed this circumstance to hit him that suddenly revealed the condition of his own heart. So the father went out and pleaded with the son after he said, I'm not going in. I'm not going to be a part of that. And notice, the, look what he said to his father in verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. You didn't throw a party for me. You didn't, you know, you didn't give me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But notice how he refers to his brother. When this son of yours, this son of yours, I mean, he's not even, he doesn't see him as his brother. He's not even respecting his father when this son of, this is your kid. I don't have anything to do with it. When he comes back, he said, he squandered your property with prostitutes. Now, first of all, how did he know about prostitutes? I thought he was the good son. How does the good boy know about those things? Just a thought. So he said, when he comes on, you kill the fatted calf. And I love the father's response. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. Don't you see that? And man, when I studied that, I thought, man, that older brother, he, he does represent the Pharisee. The first thing that jumped out at me was the religion that he was following. Notice this is Jesus' story, the religion that he was following. You see it in, these, in this expression, I have always served you and obeyed you. He was putting, get this, he was putting his value and his worth to the Father on what he did for the Father. It was a performance-based relationship. Now let me, let me expand the lens a little wider. Every religion in the world except Christianity has a works element associated with it, a works element. Do this and be saved. Quit doing that and be saved. Give this and be saved. Don't give that. And be, there, there's a, a works component to it. The Pharisee believed in the keeping of the law, even though Jesus came on the scene and said, if you've thought about breaking the law, you've broken the law. The Pharisee thought you had to actually violate it. And Jesus said, no, you're just as lost as the people that are doing it. Yours is inward, theirs is outward. The point I'm making is that he, he underscores this, this reality that there, it's not possible to, to keep all of the law and, and think in doing those things, you're going to be righteous in the eyes of God. Isaiah understood that. That's why Isaiah said, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's why the Bible says there's none who does good. No, not one. I told you last weekend, I would not trust the best five minutes I've ever lived to be good enough to get me into heaven. But this religious-based idea that the older brother was identifying with, that's why Jesus calls this out in the story, was like, I've obeyed you and I've served you, so therefore I ought to have all the benefits and the blessing of the relationship with you. He had it just the opposite. When you read the book of Ephesians, six, six chapters, Paul opens the book talking about 
our standing with Christ, who we are, before he gets into what we are to do. You see, if you start with doing and not being, you get into legalism. Now, let me tell you what legalism is. Legalism, by definition, is works for salvation. It's thinking I can do anything to merit salvation. Now, that's, that's legalism. The application of legalism, an application of legalism, is believing that you can live your life in such a way that you are now the standard by which other people's lives are measured. You set the bar. I'm, I'm anything less than me or less than my ideals of me. It's all about me. Uh, it, it, that's, that's a form of legalism. And so what I'm saying was happening in the narrative that Jesus is explaining is this young man was putting all of his, um, his value on the things that he did for his father. Now, now before I go too down, far down the trail of criticizing him, let me talk about some of the good qualities of this young man. He was a leader. The Bible says that he served his father. He had other uh, people that worked for his father that followed after him. So he had leadership qualities. He, he's... He's a good man. Not only was he a leader, he's a laborer. When you read, it says he was out in the fields. So he, get this guys, he's not asking people to do something he's not willing to do. And that's a great attribute of a leader. Remember the difference between delegating and dumping? When you delegate, you're saying to someone who may work for you, this is important, I can't, I don't have time to do it, I would do it if I did, can you do this for me? And it would help me greatly if you would. That's delegating. People don't mind that. They get that. Dumping is when you say to a person who works for you, I wouldn't do it. I don't have to do it, but you work for me, therefore you do it. <laughs> That's dumping, and people hate that. And so I'm saying this guy went out in the fields, and he set the example. He obviously had a work ethic, so don't miss this. He was a leader. Uh, he was a laborer. He was also loyal he says to his father, I've obeyed you for many years. Listen, his dad doesn't refute any of that. His dad doesn't say, oh, you know, you're not that good. Oh, you don't, no, 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 this, this is a hardworking guy. This is a hardworking man. This is a man that would be impressive. Probably if he was a part of a church, you'd try to put him, he or she in some form of leadership somewhere. They check a lot of those boxes, remember, because you can only see the outward, you can't see the inward. So you'd be moving them right along in the church. You would be bringing that person along as the ideal leader. But here was the problem with the man. He was lost. Yeah, he was a leader, and yeah, he was loyal, and yeah, he was a laborer, but he was, he was lost. He was lost in the home. He was lost in the church. He was lost close to the father, but he didn't have the heart of the father because it's seen in how he responds to his brother. He's not happy that his brother who was dead was alive or his brother who is lost is found. None of that resonated to him because he didn't have that heart. So he's lost at home. In fact, he reminded me of what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he said one day, at that great white throne, the world who's rejected Jesus will stand before him. And he said in verse 21, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, we did great things in your name. We were laborers. We were loyal. We were leaders. And, and God, there were a lot of things that happened that were positive. We did all this in your name. And look at Matthew 7, 23, what Jesus says. He says, depart from me. You've worked deceit. The, the biggest deceit's when you deceive yourself. You've deceived yourself. You, you thought your works were good enough to get you to heaven. And here's what he says. I never knew you. I didn't know you. 
You, you didn't come like the younger brother, humble and broken and repentant and, and, and receive the embrace of the father. You've stood off arrogantly and, and full of pride. You've been a sinner that didn't know he was a sinner. And Jesus said, look, you die in that condition. I'm just going to say, hey, all those good works didn't amount to anything. I mean, religion may be a good word and all, a good road and all your good works may be good things. But listen, if, if you go in the wrong direction on a good road, it just takes you to the wrong place quicker. <laughs> and so this man didn't get it. He represented, please see this, a form of religion. Let me give you these two quick things and we'll go home. He, he also, not only the religion he followed, but notice the relationship he forfeited. He had access to the Father. I think about it in church a lot of times. How many people who've been raised in church, they check all the boxes and they hear me close the service by inviting people to receive Jesus. And they've heard that so many times. And I wonder how many people have actually experienced that. Have actually had that epiphany in life where they're brought to a point where they realize, I'm lost. I need Jesus. Doesn't mean you're not a good person. It doesn't mean you're not a moral person. It does not mean you're a, a, not a successful person. It just means you may be a lost person. <laughs> I, I, I've already told you this young guy checked a lot of boxes. He's a good guy, very successful. He, he just, one thing he missed, the relationship with Jesus. And can I tell you, that's the most significant thing in the world. It's not whether you're a Baptist or a Catholic or Assembly of God. It's not your brand name. I don't care if you've been sanferized and baptized and homogenized and it, all that. All those things are well and good in their place, but there's no, listen, there's no salvific value in any of that. Jesus made it clear in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And then he made it really clear. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's not one's religion or righteousness. It's one's relationship to Jesus, right? Here's the third thing you see. You see this beautiful reception that he found from his father. His father loved him as much as he loved his younger brother. But his father was wise enough to realize he's just as lost as your little brother. You didn't do the same things he did. Yours were more inward, but your heart's not right. You're full of pride. You, you, you pointed out the sins of your brother, and boy, don't we see that a lot in church world. We're so quick, I can't believe they're here. There's a tax collector. You know, I, I, and I, I hear somebody on the other side say, man, if I go to church, the roof would fall in on me. I said, man, you need to know the people I talked to. That thing had fallen in on them. We're good to go. You're fine. You're good. Remember, it's like that guy said, I don't go to church. There's too many hypocrites. I always say, well, come on. One more ain't going to hurt anything. Good Lord. We're all, you know, just, be, just admit, I'm a sinner, no, I'm a sinner. But I'm telling you as I close, the hardest guy to reach is the sinner that doesn't think they're a sinner. I, I don't, I think you're pouring water uphill. <laughs> I, I, I don't, honestly, I, I don't think, I, honestly, as a pastor, I don't think you can reach them until they come to that epiphany. I don't think you can reach them until the right circumstances comes along to smoke some out. Until, until then, they're going to be pointing out the sins of everybody else that comes. I can't, have you heard what they did or what they do? Have you heard? And they don't realize, man, while you're pointing at splinters in the eyes of those people, you got a stinking two by four hanging out of your head, sport. Have you looked at that? 
And some of the people that accuse other people, maybe they know something about their past. And who doesn't have a past? You know? And, and, and somebody knows something about that, and they bring that up as though it's currently, it's going on right now. And most of the time, almost without exception, the person that is accusing them are either guilty of or participating in the very thing that they're accusing that brother or sister of. I've been doing this a long time. So the criticism doesn't move me, it doesn't impress, it hacks me off a little bit. Believe me, when you're building a church trying to reach broken people, and then you have those broken people come, and you have one of the older brothers going, do you know what they've done? And I'm going, yeah, I know what they've done. And they're honest enough to admit it. And they're trying to turn from it. And I pray something will happen in your life to bring you to a point of brokenness where you'll see your own sinfulness. Because both of them were wrong. Well, that's my life. <laughs> I love what I do. I just get tired of some of the other stuff that comes with what I do. Because I know a lot of stuff. <laughs> I tell you, this is free like the rest of it, and we'll go. People feel like from time to time they need to talk to me. Now, if your background, we've got a lot of Catholic people in the church, so they feel like I, I need to go talk to Bill and kind of get myself absolved of my past. First of all, I respect you, and I respect that. But can I say to you, it's not necessary. <laughs> It's not necessary. I, I really don't need to know what you've done because I've learned in my life in ministry, I've been doing this for a while, about 45 years, I guess. I've learned if you want somebody to keep talking, never look shocked. Don't look shocked. I've heard some stuff. And they'll come and they'll bend my ear and Bill, I just feel like, no, no, we're good. You don't need to, no, I just need to tell somebody, oh, okay. <laughs> Here we go. So they start unburdening themselves about some crazy thing they've been involved in. And, uh, you know, you have that response where you go, what, you buried them where? No, I've never had that. <laughs> never has happened. I just want to put that out there. Not has, had not, had, had not happened. And I get it. If, if, if they feel they need to kind of unburden their heart, and I, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm, down, I'm down to hear it. But it's not necessary. Because Hebrews said, we have a high priest. And our high priest is available, accessible. He'll hear, listen there's, listen, there's not a sin you've committed that he will not forgive. Not one, not one. There's not a burden you carry that he cannot lift. And there's not a problem you're having this morning he can't solve. So just own your messed up self and be able to come to Jesus and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm dealing with. Remember the hymn Billy Graham closed the crusades with? just as I am, without one plea. But that your blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. And Jesus said, if you'll come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. So come to Jesus. Come on, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that never returns void. It always hits the target and accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And I thank you for my friends who are honest enough to own their stuff. And I thank you for my friends who are not honest enough to own their stuff. They point out everybody else's stuff. I pray that both of them will come to that point where they trust you. If I know my own heart, we've all got a little bit of that in all of us. We all tend to do that. 
So help us to be authentic, to be honest, to be open, to realize we just may sin differently than each other. We, we may not be into the same thing. We may condone one thing that we condemn the other thing, but help us to realize all sin is against you and that we need to get our hearts right with you. So Father, I pray for anyone in the room or anyone watching who's may, who may never has received you, that this might be the moment where they say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, my sins, my faults, my failures, I now trust everything I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin, and I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.